evening everyone welcome to our live broadcast tonight we're looking at Anguttara Nikaya book of fives Sutta 29 And uh, it's quite short. Don't know if you could properly call it a sutta, though. In a sense, that's what it is. It's called the Chankama Sutta. Chankamati. Chankama comes from the root kam. Come meaning to go, chang. That's what the chang means, but it's going back and forth, going, going for a walk. Chankama is a word we use to describe walking meditation, pacing. Maybe it's a good translation of chankama. So there's not much to this sutta, and in fact, now that I think of it, most of you should know the content of the sutta from the booklet on how to meditate. But uh, nonetheless, the best thing about highlighting the sutta is just to reinforce the idea that it's something the Buddha taught, walking meditation. Most people are quite familiar with sitting meditation. We have a sense that meditation is something you do sitting down. I would say walking meditation is somewhat revolutionary for people. I don't know whether it was revolutionary in the time of the Buddha. I have to suppose it wasn't. There are actually suttas of, uh, that describe non-Buddhists. The Tevija Sutta, I think, in the Diga Nikaya that describe uh, non-Buddhists doing pacing. Pacing as a, as a form of religious uh, activity. So perhaps not meditating, but they would, they would talk while they were walking back and forth. I guess an, another example comes to mind of the Dead Poets Society, if you ever saw that old movie. They go, they go walking and talking in the yard, I think, instead of instead of class. I mean, you could come up with lots of examples of where walking was considered to have some benefit to the mind, right? There's something about walking that is uh, useful in a way that sitting meditation doesn't provide or doesn't bring to us in a way that sitting meditation isn't um, I, I think the biggest reason for it is that we are not rocks we are not dirt we are animals and we move it's part of our nature it's a part of the makeup of our bodies 
and so the, the stimulation brought about by walking is, is, is very much a part of our nature. It's maybe somewhat similar to the benefit we gain from meditating outside or in nature. People will, uh, especially with tranquility meditation, it's not so important with insight meditation, but um, meditating in nature is beneficial, and I think it's because it's very much a part of us. Living in nature is not something special about nature. It's just it's the uh, atmosphere we're used to, we're accustomed to, our bodies are accustomed to. Whereas being in cities or in in even rooms is uh, or can be somewhat jarring or lacking or or alien to us. And with insight meditation, we're not so concerned, and that's not such a big deal. But walking, I think, is more integral to who we are because our bodies are not comfortable with just sitting There's, they've done studies that show that physically sitting around all day is not it takes, apparently it reduces your life but walking actually they've actually found something it does to the cells in your body the benefits of walking and that some of that translates to the mind so, you know, not not to beat beat the horse too much, but um, the idea is that it's of benefit to us. Walking is a, a part of who we are, and so so the Buddha here gives us five benefits to walking meditation, and I talk about them in the book. So there's really not a lot to go over, but we got we we passed by this sutta, and I couldn't help but stop and make a note of it. So the five are adhana kamo, adhana kamo hoti. Kamo means able to endure or patient with. One hoti, one is, one is a person who is patient with adhana, travel. So. This was important in the time of the Buddha, the ability to walk long distances. It's even important today. We're so dependent on uh, artificial means of transportation. You know, for a Buddhist monk in the time of the Buddha, they actually weren't allowed to use uh, to ride in carts or vehicles. It's one of those rules that we tend to break today as monks unashamedly because we just couldn't get by without vehicles but the Buddha actually had an injunction against it so we really should be walking everywhere but even in the, in the time of the Buddha it was common everyone would walk everywhere so it was important because if you sat around all day and then needed to go somewhere you really wouldn't you literally wouldn't be able to get where you were going Perhaps that you could say this one's not so important, but then on the other hand, the ability to walk, the ability to mm, to travel without fatigue, right? Even for myself, walking around university all day, walking meditation is a form of exercise. When we talk about exercise. I always think of walking meditation. I know most people would think it's not really exercise. 
But honestly, there is something quite energetic about it in the effort, the energy it gives you. Uh, it does give you the ability to use your body. It does preserve that quality of locomotion, you know, the ability to travel. There's a story, there's this one monk in Thailand who apparently uh, is now confined to a wheelchair because he spent all his time sitting, uh, sitting teaching and uh, not moving. He would sit all day and teach people meditation apparently and he's now in a wheelchair. So it's a benefit. Not the most important for us, especially today, but nonetheless. Number two, Padhana Kamohoti. This is maybe more important. Padhana means effort or exertion. Kamo means one is able to endure or be patient with exertion. So here's a really good benefit for ordinary life. Walking meditation is repetitive. It's, um, it takes some amount of effort and strength. More, more mental effort and mental strength, but there's a certain fortitude that's required. A fortitude to persist with something that is um, monotonous, right? It's difficult because of the monotony, monotone, unchanging nature, unexciting. There's nothing outstanding about walking. And so it's amazing you'll find that, that your power, once you begin to take up meditation, and especially walking meditation, the power you have to work, to, to engage in menial labor, um, it's quite incredible what you're able to accomplish, the, how you're able to dispel your boredom and ennui, the, the inability to cope with day-to-day -day chores, find much easier to do the arduous tasks of everyday life. You find it much better able to deal with life, and one of the great things about walking meditation is how it tests you in this way. Uh, against boredom and frustration, agitation, restlessness, and how it mimics real life in a way that sitting meditation doesn't. So it teaches you how to be, how to how to act mindfully. Walking meditation is much more of an act than sitting meditation, and so it teaches you to to bring, how to bring the meditation into your ordinary life. Makes you better able to bear with work, with work that you have to do, and with, with everyday labor, everyday, everyday life. That's number two. Number three, appa ba do hoti. Appa means little, Abadha means sickness. Yes, walking meditation is good for your body. We've covered this, but the Buddha said it, it actually 
uh, reduces your your sickness, your 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 illness, or it improves your well-being, physical well-being. So as I mentioned, they've done studies on people who sit around all day, but I think more, even more walking meditation, the circulation and the uh, the exertion involved, and just the movement involved. You know, you might think, well, it's not helping your cardiovascular health, certainly. But uh, if you talk to people who practice Tai Chi, for example, yoga, they'll tell you the benefits of movement. And so, well, this is not our primary goal, and I wouldn't encourage anyone to think of walking meditation as similar to most types of yoga. You know, we've had, from time to time, we get meditators who turn it into yoga, where they actually... And one meditator, I watched one meditator, it was incredible. Uh, he would lift his legs like almost almost horizontal and then uh, and then bounce back. And <laughs> I was watching him do it in the hall and this woman just burst out laughing and had to run out of the hall because she couldn't, just watching this guy do his thing. And uh, we asked him, or someone asked him later why he was doing it, and he said, well, he was trying to combine, you know, because he wasn't getting any exercise, so he thought, well, it would be an opportunity. This we don't want. And you don't want to be too obsessed with exercise. I remember one time we undertook uh, walking meditation, or, or this monk invited me to do walking meditation all night, but it turned out that it was quite quick walking. You know, we walk and we, we went up to the main area in the monastery. It was a sandy area and we'd walk about I don't know, maybe fifty meters and then back. And we'd walk quickly and we would talk. We would talk about all sorts of things. And it was great. It was really energetic and was able to stay up until like three in the morning walking back and forth for hours before go actually you know, giving in and going to sleep and I went to talk to Ajahn Tong about it and I said you know, what do you think of that and he listened very quietly he was very still and then he, he said let's bep uh, farang he said I think I think he got he had the feeling that it was me and a bunch of Western people, or it was maybe my idea, because he said that's that's the farang way. Farang is a bit of a derogatory term for, but it's the word they use for foreigners. It comes from the word French, um, but it means any European person. That's the Western way, basically. And he says that's the exercise. That's the exercise way. That's not the Buddhist way. It's kind of quite quite derisive. Uh, and he said, uh, he said in the Buddhist way you have to, have to go very slowly. You have to be mindful. And so we have in the Visuddhimagga breaking the step up into six parts and being conscious of each individual part as in as being different. Because when you lift the foot, it feels different from when you move the foot. And when you lower the foot, it feels different. When you touch the floor, of course, it's a different sensation. Each piece of movement is individual. So throughout the course, we 
we uh, increase actually the complexity and so it's much less actually about walking than it is about moving each movement uh, becomes a meditation in itself becomes a meditation object so yeah you don't want to get too caught up in the idea of it being physical exercise that's not the idea but there is a sense like with Tai Chi that it helps circulation of energy and so on we're not too caught up in that but it is a benefit nonetheless and sitting around all day is recognized as being unhealthy That's number three number four uh, what is eaten what is drank what is chewed eaten up and what is tasted food what we eat and drink samma parinama goes to right to be rightly digested so it improves is a fancy way of saying it improves our it's a poly way of saying it improves our digestion that's a big one any doctor will tell you or I've had doctors tell me that um the trouble with monks is that after they eat, they do sitting meditation. This is what a doctor, a Thai doctor, told me. She said, you know, monks could be healthy, but the problem is monks, right after they eat, they do sitting meditation. I thought, well, you know, honestly, from what I've seen, the, the real problem is that after they eat, a lot of monks go to sleep. They lie down and sleep. Very bad. But, um, but Ajahn Tong, and in our tradition, there's a sense there's a recognition that after you eat the best thing is walking meditation and it makes sense, right? But, um, so it's, you know, again something we don't want to be too obsessed with but something we should be conscious of especially when we do a meditation course because it becomes your life and if you're not somewhat conscious of your, your physical health it becomes difficult to meditate and one meditator who stopped eating and all he would eat was fruit and I've seen other meditators try to do this but this meditator uh, near the end of the course he, he came and he, he said he couldn't meditate anymore because he pulled a muscle in his leg and I can't help but think that that had something to do with the fact that he hadn't been eating solid food for weeks so care for your health is somewhat on a basic level is, is a part of the practice you obviously don't want to don't want to be obsessed with it, worried about it, or go over everything, like being worried about microwave food or something like that. But you do want to be concerned to the extent that you're not just sitting around all the time, because it actually is a quite a quite a, uh, an has quite an impact on your well-being. And your state of energy, right? If you eat a lot and then you sit down, it's much more likely that you're going to fall asleep. And because we're only eating in the morning, we want to be able to digest our food well. And because we eat a lot at one time, we don't want it to put us to sleep. Walking is a great thing to do after you eat, or in general. Number four, but the most important and probably the one that we're 
most interested as, in as meditators is Chankamadi Kato Samadhi Chiratiti Kohoti. That's an interesting one. The concentration, Samadhi, that comes from pacing lasts for a long time lasts long stays with you for a while and the commentary makes the claim that uh, the meditation the concentration that you gain from sitting uh, from standing sitting or lying uh, doesn't last it quickly disappears it dissipates when you switch when you when you do when you stand still and you gain concentration it's lost when you sit and when you sit and cultivate concentration, it's lost when you switch and say, lie down. But when you walk, it gives this uh, claim that when you then switch to standing, sitting, or lying, the concentration continues. And I'm not, I guess, convinced that that's necessarily the case, or there's necessarily that categorical difference. But there certainly is a qualitative difference that the walking meditation because it's dynamic that there's some strength involved and it's like charging you up and balancing your faculties and preparing you for sitting meditation that's why we do it first because it actually helps to improve our sitting meditation not um, not that it doesn't have benefits of its own and that, you know, of its own and, and that Wisdom and enlightenment don't come from walking, but um, it has the added benefit of, of preparing you for the, the task of sitting still, right? Because that's actually in many ways much more difficult to sit still and be alert. Um, so it prepares you for it. And you could also say it cultivates a unique type of concentration that's dynamic and therefore applicable not just in sitting meditation but in your daily life. So once you, you do walking meditation, it gives you the habit of being focused when you do things, when you act, when you live. So another benefit. Now, these, as I said, will be familiar to anyone who's spent time reading my booklet, but I thought we had to stop and mention and remind ourselves of these. So that's the Dhamma for tonight. This is Michael, that guy sitting over in the corner in a very unmeditative position. I don't think he knew he was on camera, or maybe he did, but he didn't care. Michael, you're putting me to shame by not sitting in a meditative position. Anyway, the dumb is over. You can go. He just got here. He's been here a couple of days. He's actually a friend of one of my, one of the people in my Latin class. Uh, good guy. Okay, Robin, I've reduced your audio because people were saying you're too loud. Yes. 
No, they're saying I'm too quiet. Uh, Rel relatively, I'm louder than, than you, I think. Yeah, so. except when I say it that way, it sounds like it's your fault, but we all know whose fault it is. You ready for questions? I'm Father? ready. Okay. I have no access to in-person Buddhism. Can I use the online Sangha? Yes. I mean, it's, it's not. I forgot to click it, sorry. Okay, go ahead. Doesn't seem to be working. Mm hmm. Maybe I have to reload or something. This is quirky, this site. No complaints because it's now highlighted for me. Go ahead. I have no access to in-person Buddhism. Can I use the online Sangha? Absolutely, that's what it's here for. I'm not sure if there's something behind this question, but I mean, I thought it went without saying that absolutely can use this. I mean, maybe what you're asking is, is it enough to use this? And it's certainly much better to have an in-person teacher and potentially community but um, we make do with what we have and we're certainly not going to um, it's, not, it's not going to be useless to stay with this community and in fact I know several of the people on here have gained quite a bit uh, without ever having joined in any other kind of community they've gained quite a bit from, from being involved here but the, the best, uh, those would be the people who actually did an online course with me. So we'd meet once a week, one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, that's what that's for here. I would recommend that as well if you're really interested in gaining benefit, and if you really don't have access to a meditation center near you. You can sign up for the online course. Hello, Vante. What are memories in regard to ultimate reality and non-self? Memory is a thought that arises. It arises and ceases. Um, and it, it creates a, what is called sanya. Sanya meaning the, the um, perception that it is like something else. So a thought will arise Suppose you did something, now a thought that is similar to that or that non-technically or practically speaking reminds you of some of that. It might just be a, a, an image or it might be a concept, it might be a, an idea. Uh, and, and then you, you think, oh, I, rem that, I remember that thing. But technically speaking, it's, uh, it's something that is similar something of that kind arises and then there's the recognition, hey, that's like that. I think probably what you're trying to get at is something like how does how is it possible if there's no self, no continuity? Um, and I mean the universe is just incredibly complex so exactly how memory works is is interesting. I mean, a lot of memory is aided by 
the brain. So why, if, now that I've worded it the way I did, the brain is able to um, give rise to thoughts, right? Which are kind of like echoes. So the brain somehow keeps imprints of our experiences and feeds them back to us. And so that's why we're very easily able to memorize, uh, to remember things in this life. But it's not physical. That the physical only brings something back that is similar. That's not the memory. And that's not the whole picture of the memory. Because we haven't yet, and, and you know, material science, biology would be very much, neuroscience would be very much against this explanation. But the Buddhist explanation is, that it's the next step that is the memory where you say hey, say, hey, this is like that other thing. I remem I'm remembering something. You're not actually remembering, but you, you put it like that to yourself because of sanya. So it's kind of a, a very strange state that we're able to, or that it arises, that is able to compare uh, something from the past to something that you're experiencing now. Um, and I think there would be the idea of if you actively, mentally uh, try to recall something, that what you're doing is you're, you're thinking, what was that like, that thing that I did? And there arises in the mind a uh, something that is like what that was, that that's experience in the past. And then again, there's the recognition, oh, that is like what I did, or oh, yeah. We don't say it like that. We don't perceive it, most of us, as, oh yes, this is like something I did before. We perceive it as, I'm actually experiencing what happened before, but we're not. This is how memory is explained, the process of remembering something. As to why it's possible to remember something that happened a long time ago, or even in a past life, Buddhism doesn't really engage in such, um, in such inquiries. Like how is magic possible, etc., etc. I think the general sense is that the the universe is very much uh, based on experience and based on the mind, which has implications in our ability to cultivate magical, seemingly magical powers or uh, metaphysical powers, I guess, and uh, have metaphysical experiences, like remembering things. Remember things at all, because we would say just remembering physical things requires something magical or something metaphysical. Like it's in the mind, the brain, as I said, can can trick and trigger it by pulling up an image. But the fact that we're at all, we're even able to say, "Hey, that's something that happened to me in the past," is beyond the physical. So memory is something quite extraordinary, or you know simply metaphysical, meaning outside of the physical. So that helps clear it up a little bit. But those kind of questions, you have to understand, are getting bordering on speculative and certainly not worth concerning about too much. Though you know, the explanation I give, I think, is useful to help us uh, align ourselves with a Buddhist understanding of experiential reality. Dear Pante, 
What do you require from meditators who wish to stay with you at Suri Mangala and learn more about the practice and daily life of being a Theravada Buddhist monk? Not much. I require that you've read my booklet. Actually, quite a bit, I suppose. I require that you've read my booklet. I require that you keep the eight precepts while you're here. We require that you practice our meditation technique while you're here. So... You couldn't come here and uh, practice in a different tradition, which might not be to some people's mm, line with their intentions. Does an arahant have to be a monk or a nun? Apparently either they become a monk or a nun or they die. It's an either-or thing. They can't live as lay people, apparently. But they, they could become an arahant while they're a lay person. They just have That's to ordain right. after. Yep. That happened. There's many cases of that. Bahia is a good example. Um, there's another one. Uh, Kema, I think. Kema. There's a queen, Queen Kema, became an arahant, and then the Buddha said, "Well, I said to the king, well, either she becomes a nun or she dies." And the king was like, "Oh no!" And she goes into parinibbana. He said, "Don't don't speak of parinibbana. Let her become a bhikkhuni." Couldn't bear to part with her, so she became a bhikkhuni. Sometimes I wish I could go back to meditate instead of working, and that hurts my working quality and motivation. That's clinging, yes? Or is it an entire different thing that I should explore about my motivation towards work? I would say it's an entirely different thing, and uh, Buddhist meditators often have to come to terms with their duties and have to learn to see the things that they were inspired to do in a different way. And uh, the point being, they, they often miss, the, the they throw the baby out with the bathwater. So the bathwater is your, your appreciation of the work, your, your attachment and your liking of it. But the baby is your need to work. So they say, oh, I don't like to work anymore because of the meditation. Okay, I'll just stop. Which is silly because that's not the reason you work isn't because you like to work. But once that dries up, you still have to work. And so meditators become more aware of their duties. Um, you know, and they, and they often will enter into this conflict because they mistakenly give up their duties because they've also given up their attachments. So with relationships, if you're married, you, know, you, you were before you were very much attached to your spouse, and now you, you know, you, you, you're no longer so attached and so you think, well, I better just get a divorce but or not get a divorce that would be one way but you start to neglect your spouse and your family, your children children might be even better you stop taking care of them because you no longer care about them it sounds awful, I suppose but um, and, and maybe with, we'd want to phrase it a little bit differently but you still could phrase it like as being well, you still have duties to them but uh, putting it like that would m make us glare glaringly aware that in many cases our duties are just being compassionate 
you know, being kind, being a good person. Um, and so I guess working would be somehow you'd have to phrase it like that, but you know, I mean, it's quite obvious you need to work, and uh, you shouldn't confuse these two aspects: the your 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 appreciation of something and your your appreciation, your liking of something, and your appreciation of the importance of it. So it's important to keep working, unless you decide to, unless you can find a. It's important to live. Let's put it that way. So there are ways to go without working, but we have duties, we have requirements, and, and the best way is well, it's important to be able to separate that out and just keep doing it without letting it interfere with your state of mind in terms of questioning whether you want to do it or don't want to do it. And there's another part of it that actually might have been answered mm. in the last question, but have you ever known a man who was enlightened and yet retained his job, family, and social life? Or does every enlightened person naturally become a monk or a hermit, if he can, technically? No, I mean, as you can see, the as you, you're already realizing, the more you meditate, the less inclined you are to get involved in society. So that's why I kind of hesitated, because it's not that you just keep working at your same level. You do start to simplify it naturally. And it does become somewhat of, of a dilemma. That's you know, the, the other question. If you ever get to the point where you're actually an arahant, so you can forget about working, you just won't do it. So you find it harder and harder, yes, to, to force yourself to do things. Um, it becomes more of a, a, a duty. And so when you, but the point being, when you put it in that, in that context, you become less and less concerned with aspects of, 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 maintain, of, of your life, of maintaining aspects of your life. Uh, and, and so you, you, you start seeing that uh, your duties can be reduced. You don't need to work so much. You don't need to concern yourself so much with work, as long as you can make enough to stay alive. Or, you know, if you know the story of Gatakari, Gatakara, the, the potter, who we always go back, I always go back to, he just made pots from clay that he'd gathered and fire and drift, uh, discarded wood that he'd found in the forest. And... Uh, and then he sold the pots by the side of the road, but he didn't even sell them. He just put them out, and if people came by and asked him how much for that pot, he would say, oh, well, you know, leave some, leave some rice, leave some beans, whatever you think it's worth. He wouldn't even name a price. And uh, if you read the story, it's, it's quite, it gives you quite a good impression of what... Uh, he was an anagami, not an arahant. And uh, his mother was, uh, was old and sick, so he couldn't become a monk. Uh, and so to look after her, he, he made these pots, apparently. I, found, I find walking meditation much easier than sitting meditation. It is much more easy to focus on the mantra when walking than in sitting. But also I find that once I say thinking or imagining, it shuts it off. Is that a beginner's experience? It seems like shutting up the thoughts as a background noise. Am I doing it correctly, at least as a beginner? 
Yeah, well, no, I mean, because it's a new thought. When you say to yourself, thinking, that's a whole new thought, so of course the thought disappears. That's not a problem. What you're doing is, again, with the noting, what you're doing is affirming the object for what it is, so that you don't instead affirm it as being good or bad. You're cultivating a neutral reaction to the object. So when you say thinking, you're telling yourself, look, that's just thinking. It's not good, it's not bad, it's not something I should obsess over or worry about. So, and so we do that with everything. It's not a question of whether it continues or not. That's not really important. You're just trying to see that it's just a thought. It arises, it ceases, and that's it. It's impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. It's not any of these things that we think it is. It's not satisfying, it's not uh, sustainable, it's not controllable. That's all. If you're looking for something else, some special experience, some magic or bright lights or something, to understand that's not what this is for. <coughs> Sorry, this meditation tends to turn some people off because they say, where are the... Where's the fireworks? There's no fireworks. I had an experience in meditation where it felt like I went out of body and that my true identity was spirit, but was incarnated into this body. The experience was tremendously beautiful and blissful. It left me feeling like being in this body is a sort of prison. Does this sound like it may fit into any Buddhist interpretation? No, it's just, an, I mean, it's it's a common experience for meditators, but uh, it's still delusion. The idea that there's a being, an entity, a spirit, it's the same as the feeling we have now in the body. Yes, I'm a being, an entity, a person. Whether you're in the body or out of the body, the truth is the only thing that's real is experience, and experience arises and ceases. So what happens is when you have that experience, you give rise to conception. You conceive of it as being stable, stable, lasting, uh, a soul, a self, a spirit, etc. But that's just a conception, and the conception as well arises and ceases. It takes uh, some dedication to, to insight meditation to be able to see that the mind and the body are both arising and ceasing momentarily. Um, so, and the experience wasn't, unfortunately, tremendously beautiful and blissful, but your reaction to it was that this is beautiful, and perhaps blissful maybe, yes, there may have been some pleasant ex pleasant feelings about it, and you found those to be desirable. Um, and so the Buddhist interpretation is that once you went back into your body, you suffered withdrawal from the drug that you had become addicted to. So this drug of that wonderful, blissful experience, the experience wasn't wonderful and blissful, but your liking of it, your conception of it as being wonderful and blissful, left you un uh, displeased, dissatisfied with what had previously uh, more or less satisfied you, or well, had, had not given you that discontent. And so what you're experiencing is very much what the Buddha was talking about, that Tanha is the cause, craving is the cause of suffering. And it's very common for meditators who have these kind of quote-unquote special experiences. They're quite impressive. Most people, ordinary people, will never have such an experience and will believe that, be very quite skeptical as to the, the truth of such an experience. But nonetheless, 
Um, but when, when, when it does occur, it's quite common for meditators to become attached to them and, and thereby uh, dissatisfied with ordinary experience. So all it is is a lesson in clinging and the, the results of clinging. Unfortunately, sorry, that's not the goal you're looking for. It is a good sign, a sign of good concentration, so you have to say that. A person who's not meditating wouldn't give rise to it, but it's just a byproduct. I have heard of Zen Buddhism. Obviously in Buddhism the goal is enlightenment, but in Zen they have their own technique called Zazen. Does this mean Vipassana is not the I don't only think path I can to answer. enlightenment? I don't think, sorry to interrupt you, but... I don't think I can answer this or the other part. It's speculative about Zazen, which, again, other religious or spiritual practices unrelated to our tradition. I'm not, I mean, I don't want to encourage, um, you know, speculating about other traditions, whether they're the same or different. It's not, uh, there are a lot of interesting questions that we don't want to entertain here, just for sake of our cohesion and because it's difficult to answer and speculative and so on, on my part I was putting a lot of effort into my touching making sure I felt something at the exact touching point I stopped putting so much effort in now and find that I can't always get the exact touching point too well and don't feel the touching so much I'm guessing that this is showing me unsatisfying. Should I be waiting to note the touching until the mind settles on the exact correct point, not going back to the rising and falling until it does? Yeah, I, I, it should be clear that with that particular technique, it's not about whether you feel something or don't. It's about putting your mind at that spot and you touch with the mind. Sometimes you feel something, sometimes you don't. As you can see, it's impermanent, it's not really under your control. That's not really the point. The exercise is just a, kind of like a mental training. So you put your mind at the spot and you say touching. And at the very least, you're aware of the mind going to the spot. So it's at the very least mindfulness of the mind. Um, you're watching how your mind works. And you're able to see your mind sometimes behaves, sometimes doesn't, and so on. Um, I know it's, some people are a bit confused about this exercise and why we're actually doing it. It's just adding something extra for advanced meditators. So I wouldn't overthink it and definitely don't have to worry about whether you feel something or not. You can even imagine like a coin or something the size of a coin. Yeah, even just imagine a coin touching the spot. So it's kind of like a samatha exercise in a sense, but it's... Uh, just a means of adding something to the basic rising and falling. It's a basic feeling. In brief, don't worry about feeling. Monte, in my experience, sitting meditation allows for deeper meditation than walking meditation. What could be causing this? An attachment to being still? Yes, we're not concerned about deeper meditation. This is samatha, or, or this is a different goal. Our intention is to have an ordinary state of consciousness, natural state of consciousness. You shouldn't even feel anything. 
you look at these guys when they get to Sankarupekanyana, when they get to the higher states of insight meditation, you talk to them, they just feel natural, but natural in a way like they've never felt before. It's all of all of ordinary people who are unnatural with their likes and dislikes. Um, so, if sitting meditation make, makes you feel calm or quiet, you should note that. In the end, it won't even feel like that. It'll just feel natural. Hi, Bunsey and Robin. I generally do my formal sitting meditation in the morning right after I wake up. But sometimes when I'm tired, I try doing lying meditation. Generally, this doesn't work, and I end up either falling back asleep or becoming completely unaware of the breath. Is there anything I can do to be more mindful when lying, or should I resolve to focus on sitting? Hi, Brenna. Good to see you. Hi, Brenna. Um, well, I mean, maybe you should try doing walking meditation. You know, that can be even harder. But yeah, I would recommend uh, at the very least sitting, or standing maybe is a good halfway. Do some standing meditation. You can also get up and uh, wash your face. It's a good Buddhist thing to do. Wash your face first thing in the morning. And uh, you know, just get your mind active. Sometimes your mind is still stuck half asleep. Your brain, I suppose. And no, your mind as well is kind of stuck in the trance. And so you have to kind of wake it up something to wake it up. Walking meditation is good for that, but there are other things you could do. Go outside, look at the stars, do some chanting is a good one first thing in the morning. You might want to take up chanting, something we do early in the morning as a means of waking up. When I used to, uh, when I used to drive, couldn't figure out a way to stay awake um, driving at night, especially being you know, as a meditator, it's very easy to enter into a state where you start to nod off, right? So I tried chanting and it worked like a charm and I realized, well that's like when people sing to the radio, right? But when you can also chant and it really does keep you awake. Will your meditation center be around in the next three to five years? Or is this a short-term project? Is optimal health a requirement? Very, very different questions, I think. Three different questions. Um, I don't know if I'll be around in the next three to five years. I'm dying, you know. I could be dead. I could be dead in a couple of years. Monks have to be very careful about talking about their health. Well, teachers anyway, because they very quickly wind up with lots of medicine. I remember when I was sick in India. As soon as I told the told the other monks that I was sick, suddenly I had a handful. I remember I, my hands were full of medicine. And I was looking, and I, you know, if I took took all this, I would it would ki it would kill me. Right? <laughs> But everyone on the bus, I was with Wat Rampung, uh, this big meditation center, and there were twenty-some lay people, women almost entirely, and uh, four or five monks, and everybody had medicine. And one monk, he was actually scolding me, he said, you're going to take that medicine. Really nice guy. 
ended up taking some vitamin C and giving the rest back or throwing it out, I can't remember. A lot of paracetamol, Tylenol, I think. Um, anyway, that was a bit of a tangent now, wasn't it? But uh, the future is uncertain. And what I can say is um, right now we're just renting a place. So I don't think in three to five years we'll necessarily be here. But uh, you know, maybe someday we'll have a more stable situation where we actually have a piece of land in the name of the organization. Um, I mean, this certainly isn't, there's no sense that we're just doing this for for some, for like a pastime while we, mo before moving on to something more important. I'm not, I don't have any future plans beyond this. Is optimal health important? No, not necessarily. Sickness can be quite educational. Sir, in one of the previous questions with regard to requiring to do your duties, you said, let's let's put it, it's important to live. Why is it important to live? And you can't meditate. Um, because we don't know where we're going when we die. You might die and be born an animal. You can't meditate as an animal. I was at a funeral recently and couldn't be emotional with the mourners experiencing the sadness about the death of their loved ones. I believe this is because I do not experience much emotion lately. I don't know whether this is from the meditation practice or simply my biology, but as a result of this disconnect, it was quite awkward as, I, as it was obvious I was unaffected. How does one deal with these tender situations? Am I being too apathetic? I don't think so. Funerals are kind of funny, <laughs> humorous. <laughs> Sounds awful to say that. The only reason I say that is to try to shock with a shock value. Why aren't they humorous? Why isn't it funny? I don't suppose it is all that funny. There is some some sense of you know a, a funeral is a time for um, reflection. You know, so certainly there is room for severity, but um, I mean, there's, there's, it's just simply a part of life. Death is, is a part of this trap that we've got ourselves in. So I, th I think if any, if any, I, I, I don't really think you should laugh at funerals, but. Um, What's most funny about funerals is how sad people get. Um, you know, it's it's um, somehow incredible how how blind we are to our attachments to other people. It sounds cruel, I suppose. It's it's not just funerals. On the, I find on the other side too, um, when there's a you know a happy celebration, like someone's having a baby or or whatever. 
other people are, you know, so, they get so excited about it. And mm. my progress over these last few years, they're just, I'm not, not outwardly really happy, excited, or sad. Right. It's just more subtle, more subtle. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good answer. I was just trying to think more theoretically about, the, the philosophically about the nature of a funeral. Um, but it's, you know, it's incredible. Like, we'll go and give talks and at funerals and, and you know, try and explain to people, you know, really, this is, there's no benefit to being sad. It doesn't help the person who died. It's not actually of any use to you or that person. And then, and then, you know, after giving this talk, and you think, well, they, they kind of understood what I was saying, then the family gets up and cries, of course, because it's not intellectual, it's, it's a really deep-seated attachment. I guess the, the, another thing is how it's, um, we feel, like, we feel sorry for people, right? You lose a loved one, I'm sorry for your loss. There's, I think, somewhat a sense of, you know, you, you brought this on yourself. This is, it's self-inflicted. It's like, uh, I suppose, being sor feeling sorry for a, feeling so, it's, it's similar to a person going through withdrawal. It's so awful to say, but it's, you know, how a Buddhist technically would look at this, is going through withdrawal from a drug. Do you say, oh, I'm sorry, you can no longer take the drug, <laughs> right? Is that awful, I suppose, but that's really it, you know. This this drug, you can no longer take this drug called your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter or your father or your mother. That drug is no longer available to you. Yes, there's more to it than that, but that's the only reason why you're sad. The, the more to it has nothing to do with your sadness. Your sadness, your loss, is all because of your attachment. Attachment to pleasant sensations, memories, attachments to the concept of that person, which is often not entirely who they are because you tend to forget all the bad things and the problems you had with them, right? Suppose you had a bad relationship with a person, well, when they die, you forget all that and you're really sad that they're gone and that you couldn't have had a better relationship and so on. But no, when a person goes through withdrawal, we say, hey man, you're better off. No, not better off. Uh, we sympathize with them for what they have to go through, but it's a result of the, the clinging to the drug. I mean, in a sense, it's not a result of having that relationship, it's a result of attachment to them. So, you know, it, I think it's important to question that, and there's a lot you can say. You know, first of all, there's nothing, yes, there's nothing to be excited about someone having a baby. It's like, oh man, another one, right? <laughs> another human is going to have to go through all this horrible stuff that I had to go through. Puberty and education, jobs, old age, sickness, death. That's what's in store for this kid. When people get married, you're supposed to say congratulations. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I admit that there is potential good to marriage, but 
And there's also a lot of rubbish involved. I mean, hey, you might even have kids, and wouldn't that be horrible? It's just interesting if you if you haven't been a monk all these years and you've been a lay person who was so excited about marriage and babies and all these things and then you know all these years later it's like oh. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, which you have you've had all that experience, no? You've had kids. I mean, yeah, we get very much attached to them, very much attached to people and. I mean, that's a big, it's a big, it's a big draw to Buddhism when people realize this death, right? If you look at this, was, this was the Buddha's realization that drew him to, to leave home. Because he said, well, this isn't going to solve anything. I take care of my family and live my life and become successful. It's not going to help me. It's not going to help them. There's no benefit to this. This is just the path to death. He came to that uh, through this anguish, this realization that, man, all these people I love are going to die. I'm going to die. It's like, it, 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 it throws all of your hopes and dreams and ambitions out the window. It, make, it renders them void and useless. It turns everything, it makes everything purposeless. It's, you can't keep it. You know, if we didn't die, if we could live forever and then we could build things, right? We could, no, I don't know, that's even going too far because it's not even true. But it's certainly a, in a mundane sense, um, it's, a, it's a wisdom, it's a, it's a mundane sort of wisdom to see that you know, death circumscribes life and, and everything as a result. But which makes funerals funny, I think, because we knew it was coming. And you know, why 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 are we so sad? You know, why is this such a, a, a suffering to us? Didn't you know your family was going to die? Didn't you know these people were all going to die? We're kind of dumb that way, really. I mean, there's no reason you should sympathize with these people, you know, or, or commiserate with these people and say yes, yes, let's mourn. What are you blind? You know, you, all these years you didn't. Well, of course they're dead, you know, that's, what, that's the end of life, that's what happens. But yeah, probably not the right thing to say at the funeral either. No. Compassion no, or anywhere, or on, like, like on the Practice. internet, for example. It's not something you'd want to s spout out on the internet, for sure. Practice karuna meditation, is that, am I saying the right one? Yeah, well, karuna is sometimes overrated. But you have to get through the funeral somehow. No, absolutely. No, but uh, you read the Uruga, Uruga, Ura, Uraga Jataka, the snake Jataka. The snake kills this guy's, bites this guy's son, and they, none of them cry. He doesn't cry, his wife doesn't cry, his daughter doesn't cry. Servants don't get upset. And they say, it's, you know, it's, well, this, is, this is life, you know. We knew this was, this was his path. He came uninvited, and he goes uninvited. He didn't say, he didn't, you know, we knew this was the way of it. It doesn't help now to get upset. And people do it because they, it's it's the accepted means of dealing with uh, you know, your attachment and your withdrawal, because we don't know a better way. 
um, and because of having this as our way, it becomes it, it takes on an importance, a sense that yes, it's right, and people will actually get quite angry at you if you don't, or if you if you uh, disregard as I am doing their uh, their grief. People get quite angry about it, quite upset. Can't you see they're grieving? Well, yeah, I'd like to help them stop. <laughs> it's not helping anything. It isn't, actually. It's, I mean, it's a temporary relief. Crying is, it apparently re releases chemicals, and it's quite pleasant to cry. So it's a relief to cry. So it's a drug in and of itself. Another addiction for us to add to the list. Good stuff. Funerals. Hopefully food for thought. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious or smarmy or, or, or you know, overly uh, making light of an issue, but uh, the issue is more people's addiction than it is the, the sadness of the event, because the event is just a part of life. I mean, it's something we all knew was coming and shouldn't have been a surprise to any of us. It's quite sad that we are so sad. That's the real problem. So hopefully that helps. Um, you know, at least gives you someone on your side to say, "Hey, you're not wrong." Um, but I think yes, Robin is absolutely correct that probably the best thing to do, and what of course any reasonable human being would do, is to express you know, some sense of sympathy for the person's sadness and other people's sadness um, and to temper your own ordinary activity like you wouldn't want to at a funeral start um, I don't know talking about work or, or other things you have to give give a sense and, and I think I think that's where where you actually could as a Buddhist understand the sense of severity of the occasion as I said death is a serious thing you know it, it should help us all remember the fact that you know, this is the end of life. Not get sad, that's not the point, but to to stir you and, and almost make you afraid. You know, to wake you up and say, wow, yeah, that's going to happen to me. That's absolutely what should come. Look at a dead person and say, man, they were here and now they're gone. That's, life is, is so uncertain. So it shouldn't, you shouldn't laugh. I didn't really mean to say it's funny. It's curious, and it's, they are kind of funny when you think about them, but it's not a time for humor. That's not, I didn't mean to suggest that. And again, you see, eventually we start clicking on the buttons and it doesn't go away. Do you notice that? Yeah, I don't know if my screen is frozen. Just no, reload it. The app seems to hang at some point. Okay. I don't know why it's doing that. Or maybe it's just overloaded by people or something. What is the basis for calling Pachaka Pariga Nyana, Second Insight Knowledge Attainer, as Chula, Small, Sotapana, or Niyata Katika, 
does that mean there's no chance for the meditator to deteriorate in the present life after attaining that knowledge, even if he doesn't meditate? That's what it means. No, I don't know. That's what the Visuddhimagga says, so we give it some weight. We might not be entirely, I mean, the Buddha never said such a thing, so we might not be entirely reliant upon it as true, but it's uh, certainly worth giving some attention to. The point, um, if you want an explanation, the point is that the second stage of knowledge has to do with the understanding of karma. So the, the idea is that a person who's attained it has an understanding of right and wrong because they've started to see, yes, good leads to good, bad leads to bad. Um, and that the power of that understanding is said to be enough to... And the, the point being that it's not permanent, that knowledge. So with death, one might completely lose sight of... Well, not completely, but it'll it'll go away to some extent. So um, that's why it's only for this life. But as long as in this life, the idea is that that, that knowledge sticks with you in this life and... Therefore, when you die, it's strong enough to keep you from being born in hell. That's all it means. One day we, we actually have a director's meeting. Anthony is... Oh, okay. Well, we've got two more questions. Let's go quickly then. Okay. Sure. What happens to an arahant at death? Arahants don't exist, so and there's no, and death is death doesn't exist either. So it's not a very good question. I mean, it's a common question. It's a question that actually is asked in the Buddhist teaching, but I don't really have time to go into why it is. But neither an arahant nor death actually exists. So technically speaking, it's it's not an it's not a thing that happens. I've been having depression for the past month due to a relationship issue. I found your video on meditation that stated medication is the cure for the body, but medication, meditation is the cure for the mind. So I started doing meditation instead of going to the psychiatrist to get medicine. I'm now getting better through meditation and dhamma listening and found out that I got a lack found out that I got a lack of feeling of self-worth. Could meditation help with growing of self-worth in practice? No, we're not interested in self-worth. Don't listen to people who tell you to be proud of yourself, etc., etc. But lack of self-worth is not what you have, probably. Most people that they describe feelings of self-hatred as low self-worth. So now self-hatred is, is, is real. Lack of self-worth is, is not a problem. But what we do get that is a problem is self-hatred, and that's an actual state. It's positive in the sense of actually arising. It's not positive in the sense of being good. But when self-hatred arises, you have to say disliking or angry or hating or, or, or so on. Um, note that when you chastise yourself, when you're angry at yourself, when you abuse yourself and call yourself stupid and so on. Meditation absolutely can help you let go of that. Um, but you don't need any sense of self-worth. You're useless. We all are. <laughs> yep. Worthless. Completely worthless. We all are. 
but uh, that's, that's I have to go into detail to explain that one. But yeah, it's important to say to counteract this idea: you're worth something, you're valuable, you're special. No, you're not. We're all rubbish and garbage and confused, and in the end, you can you can't make. This is a, a sousy or not a silk purse. Uh, in the end, you just end up letting go of yourself. Then you're much happier, much more peaceful. Okay, we have to go because we have a meeting. But thank you all. It's been uh, productive, I hope. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for your questions. Wishing you all good practice. Have a good night.